This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much, and thank you for that welcome. I'm happy to be here with you this evening. Uh, I've been asked to talk on whether science and religion are compatible. Now, I have to warn you, this could be a very short talk. It might go uh, something like this. Uh, are science and religion compatible? Yep, that's it, the end. But uh, since we've all come out this evening, uh, maybe we, and we have some time available, we can fill that in a bit. To a number of people, it sounds and seems like science and religion are not compatible. One of them is the American biologist, Jerry Coyne. In 2015, he published a book titled Faith, Faith Versus Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. He commented on it in an interview with National Geographic magazine and said, if you teach evolution, you're teaching the one form of science that hits Abrahamic religions in the solar plexus. There are a number of things about evolution and science that undermine religion. First of all, the fact that the Genesis story is wrong. There is no evidence that there's any qualitatively different feature about humans from other species. We're not special products of God's creation. We're learning a lot about the universe and what we're seeing is that it's all naturalistic processes. We are creatures of physics made of molecules. Therefore, our thoughts and behaviors are also the result of molecular motions. One of the meanings of superstition in the Oxford English Dictionary is a belief that is unfounded or irrational. Since I see all religious belief as unfounded and irrational, I consider religion to be superstition. His words suggest that science and faith are not only incompatible, but openly hostile to each other, something like a punch in the solar plexus. In his book, he uses the word war to describe the relationship. He says, I maintain that religion and science are engaged in a kind of war, a war of understanding, a war about whether we should have good reasons for what we accept as true. The idea of a war between science and religion is nothing new. It goes back at least to the 19th century, marked by the publication of two books, The History of Conflict Between Religion and Science by John William Draper, and A History of Warfare of Science and Theology in Christendom by Andrew Dixon White. White describes the struggle as a war waged longer, with battles fiercer, with sieges more persistent, with strategy more shrewd, than in any comparatively transient warfares of Caesar and Napoleon. In 1995, Daniel Dennett announced that the war was over and he gave the outcome. He wrote, science has won and religion has lost. Darwin's idea has banished the book of Genesis to the limbo of quaint mythology. For others, however, the war continues as the new atheists continue to publish their books. Then there are some who say that there never was a war. The historian John Hedley Brooke writes, 
Popular generalizations about the relationship between science and religion, whether couched in terms of war or peace, simply do not stand up to serious investigation. The theologian Joshua Moritz sums up this position in the title of his article, The War That Never Was, Exploding the Myth of the Historical Conflict Between Christianity and Science. What can we say about these issues? First, we should note that the question of the compatibility of religion and science is part of a larger issue regarding the relationship between faith and reason. And that debate has a long history. Down through the centuries, some have found ways to harmonize faith and reason, while others see only conflict. In the early church, some Christians employed Greek philosophy to express doctrinal teachings. In 325, for instance, the Council of Nicaea used philosophical not notions such as person and essence to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one essence and three persons. Not everyone was happy, however, with the marriage of faith and philosophy. One father of the church, Tertullian, was especially displeased, as he put it, what has Athens, that is the city of Greek learning, to do with Jerusalem, that is the city of faith? Tell me what is the sense of this itch for idle speculation? What does it prove this useless affectation of a fastidious curiosity? It was highly appropriate that Thales, the first Greek philosopher, while his eyes were roaming the heavens in astronomical observation, should have tumbled into a well. This mishap, may well serve to illustrate the fate of all who occupy themselves with the stupidities of philosophy. Centuries later, the medieval Franciscan uh, Jacoponi de Toda shared the same sentiment when he lamented that Paris, the great medieval city of learning, has destroyed Assisi, the city of the simple faith of St. Francis. In whimsical verse, he made clear which side of the faith reason debate he was on. He wrote, Plato and Socrates may contend and all the breath in their bodies spend arguing without an end. But what's it all to me? Only a pure and simple mind straight to heaven its way doth find, greets the king while far behind lags the world's philosophy. The 19th century philosopher August Comte argued that reason has gradually replaced faith as humans develop from the theological stage of society where humans invent gods and priests are the rulers to the metaphysical stage where the gods are replaced by abstract comment, concepts as principles of explanation to the positive stage where empirical science provides true explanations established by scientific method. In our time, the question of the relationship between faith and reason continues. Today, atheistic scientists often present themselves as representatives of reason, while entrenched fundamentalists are taken as defenders of the faith. To understand the dynamics of the conflict, we need to know something more about the relation between faith and reason. The nature of faith and reason is easy enough to illustrate. Faith has to do with what we believe, and reason with what we know. On an everyday level, there are some things we know and some things we believe. 
Generally, we have knowledge of things we've seen or experienced. For instance, I know that my computer is sitting here in front of me because I see it. But there are many other things I don't know or haven't experienced directly. I may accept them or believe them on the authority of someone else. We do that every day when we watch the evening news, trusting the veracity of the newscaster. There are also things that some people know, but others take on faith. If you're a physicist, for instance, you may know that E equals MC squared. You've done the math, figured out why this is the case. But if you're an English major, you probably just take it on faith. There are some things, however, that lie utterly beyond our grasp, at least in this life. I think of the statements we recite in the creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, who was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, suffered death and rose on the third day. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. These are truths that lie beyond our knowledge. We accept them on faith. And that's a reasonable thing to do. If it's reasonable to accept the evening news on the authority of the newscaster, it's all the more reasonable to accept the good news of the gospel on the authority of the Son of God. As Jesus says, for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Since truth is one, and God is the ultimate source of all truth, there can be no real conflict between the truth that God reveals and the truth that we discover through science. As Thomas Aquinas explains, although the truth of Christian faith surpasses the capacity of reason, nevertheless, that truth that human reason is naturally endowed to know cannot be opposed to the truth of Christian faith. Today, a growing number of scientists and theologians are eager to overcome apparent conflicts between science and religion through dialogue and understanding. That's the work of the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences here at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where I teach at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Ian Barber, who generously endowed that center, dedicated his life to the science-religion dialogue. In his book, Religion in an Age of Science, he mapped out four helpful models to characterize the relation between science and religion. These are first, conflict, second, independence, third, dialogue, and fourth, integration. I'll use that structure in the next part of this talk. So we begin with conflict. We've already seen some thinkers who are convinced that the conflict between faith and reason is inevitable. When conflict is unavoidable, the tendency, of course, is to choose sides. And we saw how Tertullian and Jacoponi de Toda chose faith at the expense of reason. Today, some people do the same. Biblical fundamentalists, for instance, cling to a literal interpretation of scripture and deny the findings of science. But if believers can become entrenched, so can scientists. Carl Sagan, for instance, famously proclaimed that the material cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. I think that such conflicts arise fundamentally when theologians and scientists violate the limits of their respective disciplines. Pope Leo XIII pointed this out long ago. He said, 
There can never indeed be any real discrepancy between the theologian and the physicist, as long as each confines himself within his own lines and both are careful, as St. Augustine warns us, not to make rash assertions. To see the lines or borders of science and religion, we might consider their methods. Science uses a quantitative method in its study of the world. The method excludes whatever is not quantifiable or measurable. We might say it involves a methodological naturalism. The rigorous employment of that method has led to all the advances in science, technology, and medicine that we've witnessed in the last few centuries. The very success of that method, however, led some to proclaim that science provides not just an effective method for studying the world, but the only possible method for such study, as they assumed reality itself is essentially quantitative. Through this assumption, they transform the methodological naturalism of science into what we might call a metaphysical naturalism, a claim that reality itself is quantifiable and what is not quantifiable is not part of reality. It's important to notice, however, that this claim itself is not a scientific conclusion since science could never establish it. The claim belongs rather to the unfounded ideology known as scientism. Since that ideology embraces metaphysical materialism and naturalism, it must contradict any religion that affirms the existence of a spiritual or supernatural reality beyond the limits of science. I think much of the commonly called the conflict between religion and science is actually a conflict between religion and scientism. Looking back at the quotation I used at the beginning of the talk, it seems to me that Jerry Coyne may be suffering from scientism. He says, we're learning a lot about the universe and what we are seeing is that it's all a naturalistic process. Of course, if your only method for looking at the universe is the naturalistic method of science, it's not surprising that all you find are naturalistic processes. Coin calls religion's belief unfounded and irrational, but again, if your only standard for a founded and rational truth is the empirical method of science, whatever lies beyond that method will appear unfounded and irrational. Coin's scientism is confirmed in his book, Faith versus Fact, where he says, truth is simply what is, what exists in reality and can be verified by rational and independent observers. Having assumed that truth requires empirical observation, he feels free to draw the following conclusion. He says, it is not true that somebody had a re revelation from God. The scientific claims can be corroborated by anyone with the right tools, while a revelation, though perhaps reflecting someone's perception, says nothing about reality. For unless that revelation has empirical content, it cannot be corroborated. This implies that all truth and all reality must lie within the limits of empirical observation. That would mean that since the divine trinity can't be empirically observed, it must be untrue. But of course, Coyne's assumption that all truth must be empirically observable cannot itself be empirically observed. 
The physicist Arthur Eddington has a great story about the dangers of assuming that your method of investigating is all encompassing. He tells the story of an ichthyologist, a man who studies fish, who after carefully studying ocean life for many years, using a net with a two inch mesh, solemnly concluded that no sea creature is less than two inches long. If you arbitrarily assume that all of reality must lie within the limits of scientific method, there's a lot you can miss. If scientists can overstep the bounds of their disciplines, theologians can do that too. Theology studies God as the creator, the first cause of all things. As such, God can act directly or miraculously in the natural world, but God also wills to share his causality with creatures and act through them as secondary causes. Theologians can be faulted if they rush to invoke the primary causality of God and forget the secondary causality of creatures. Thomas Aquinas points out how this can happen. Using the science of his day, which sounds antique to us, but was contemporary to him, he says, when we ask the reason why in regard to a natural effect, we can give a reason based on approximate cause, provided, of course, that we trace all things back to the divine will as the first cause. Thus, if the question is asked, why is wood heated in the presence of fire? It is answered because heating is the natural action of fire. And this is so because heat is the proper accident of fire. But this is the result of its proper form and so on until we come to the divine will. Hence, if a person answers someone who asks why wood is heated and says, because God willed it, he is answering appropriately provided he intends to take the question back to the first cause, but not appropriately if he intends to exclude all other causes. Secondary causes are excluded when God is prematurely invoked as the cause of some natural phenomenon that science has not yet explained. This is problematic for a couple of reasons. First, it suggests that the divine explanation of the phenomenon is somehow on the same level and so possibly in competition with any natural explanations that science may eventually find. Secondly, it entails the possibility that the divine cause will have to be withdrawn when a natural explanation is discovered. In this way, it turns the transcendent God into what we might call a God of the gaps, who temporarily fills the holes in the scientific account of the world, but must continually retreat before the advance of science. As Francis Collins, the geneticist who headed the Human Genome Project explains, a word of caution is needed when inserting specific action by God in any area where scientific understanding is currently lacking. From solar eclipses in olden times to the movement of the planets in the Middle Ages to the origins of life today, this God of the gaps approach has all too often done a disservice to religion. Faith that places God in the gaps of current understanding about nat the natural world may be headed for crisis if advances in science subsequently fill those gaps. Well, so much for conflict. Now we can consider uh, Barber's second model, which is independence. Some thinkers maintain that science and religion are in 
incapable of conflict since they belong to different realms and so really have nothing to do with each other. Just as giraffes never get into fights with sea slugs, so science never fights with religion since they basically belong to different realms. Stephen Jay Gould endorses this idea with his notion of non-overlapping magisteria for which he uses the acronym NOMA, N-O-M-A. Science and religion have distinct magisteria or areas of inquiry that don't overlap. Science belongs to the objective world of fact, while religion belongs to the subjective world of value or meaning. The theologian Rudolf Bultmann seems to subscribe to this approach in his method of scriptural interpretation. He thought that science explains the facts of what happens in the world in a way that left no room for God's action. Whenever scripture appears to speak of some objective action of God, such as the creation of the world or maybe the parting of the Red Sea, it is using mythological language that has to be interpreted or demythologized if we're to understand its real meaning. It must be translated into subjective statements about our human hopes and fears and experiences and feelings. So for instance, the statement that God created the world really means only that we feel a sense of dependence on God. Religion could never make objective statements of fact since it belongs to the subjective realm of meaning. Religion and science are each valid in their own realm, but they really have nothing to do with each other. The problem with this approach is that we don't live in two worlds. And in that one world that we live in, we are both believers and knowers. As believers, we sometimes need to make factual statements about the real world, as in the fundamental scriptural assertion about the passion of Christ, then they crucified him. And as knowers, we seek not only data, but also meaning and significance in what we know. That brings us to the third model of dialogue. In dialogue, certain points of contact are established between religion and science that allow them to talk to each other. For instance, in his book, The Language of God, a Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, Francis Collins argues that biologists and believers can find common ground in the notion of theistic evolution, which he calls biologos. James Jones argues that for the compatibility of religion and cognitive science, in his book, Can Science Explain Religion? The Cognitive Science Debate. And Arno Penzias, one of the discoverers of the background radiation left over from the Big Bang, thinks that the very discoveries of science lead it closer to religion. He writes, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and what one which has an underlying, we might say, supernatural plan. Thus, the observations of modern science seem to lead to the same conclusions as centuries-old religious intuition. The Catholic Church has actively fostered the dialogue between religion and science by establishing the still thriving Vatican Observatory in 1789 and the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences in 1936. Well, the fourth model is integration. Since faith and reason use the same language to describe the same world, 
they must in some ways overlap. And so the conclusions of one may have consequences for the other. So for example, when Isaac Newton and William Paley saw scientific evidence for design in nature, they considered it legitimate to use that evidence to speak of God. And when the Big Bang theory offered scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning, Pope Pius XII thought it appropriate to point out a consonance between this scientific theory and the Christian doctrine of creation. Conversely, as evidence mounted in favor of the theory of biological evolution, it seemed appropriate to reconsider some traditional interpretations of the creation story in Genesis. The integration of faith and reason presents us with the challenge of determining when the tenets of faith should be modified in accordance with the findings of reason and when reason should be directed by faith. It's a difficult question. So for guidance, I suggest we turn to that master of difficult questions, St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas had a ready answer to the question of whether faith or philosophy should take precedence when there's an apparent conflict between them. We might call it his little old lady argument. After pointing out the different opinions of ancient philosophers on whether or not the human being has an immortal soul, he asks, but what little old lady in Latin word vetula, what little old lady is there today who does not know that the soul is immortal? Faith can do much more than philosophy. So if philosophy is contrary to faith, Aquinas says, it is not to be accepted. But sometimes this quick and ready answer isn't quite adequate. So Aquinas goes into greater detail later in the Summa when he discusses how to interpret the passages of scripture that assert that there are waters above the heavens. This is Genesis chapter one, verse seven. First, he points out that we should not doubt that the waters are there since scripture says they are, but we need to decide exactly what those waters are. Aquinas knows from the science of his day that physical water cannot exist above the firmament up in the heavens, since the heavenly bodies are not composed of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. He points out that a primitive philosophy such as Thales might be able to show there are waters above the heavens, uh, since in that philosophy, the whole cosmos is nothing other than water in one form or another. In the philosophy and science of his time, however, the idea of water literally existing out there uh, could be, he says, shown to be false for solid reasons. And so could not, he says, be held to be the sense of Holy Scripture. After explaining that Moses was talking to ignorant people when he wrote this passage of Scripture, Aquinas goes on to offer an interpretation of the passage that's in accordance with the science of his day. A similar method of reconciling faith and reason can be found in Galileo. So to paraphrase his argument, Galileo thought that the surest way to resolve the controversy on the movement of the heavens, so important in his day, would be, he says, to give a host of proofs that the Copernican position is true and that the contrary cannot be maintained at all. Thus, since no two truths can contradict one another, this and the Bible must be perfectly harmonious. 
The Bible can never speak untruth whenever its true meaning is understood. But the meaning of the Bible is often not the unordained, unadorned grammatical meaning, since the Bible often accommodates its language to common people who are rude and unlearned. Therefore, in discussions of physical problems, we ought to begin, he says, not from the authority of scripture passages, but from sense experiences and necessary demonstrations. Since divine revelation and the phenomena of nature both proceed from the divine word, nothing physical which sense experience sets before our eyes or which necessary demonstrations prove to us ought to be called into question upon the testimony of biblical passages, which may have some different meaning beneath the words. After all, he points out, quoting Cardinal Baronius, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how one goes to heaven, not how the heavens go. There are times, he concludes, when reason should give way to faith and times when what has been accepted as part of faith should give way to reason. He says, from the above words, I may deduce this doctrine that in the books of the sages of the world, there are contained some physical truths which are soundly demonstrated and others that are merely stated. As to the former, it is the office of wise divines to show that they do not contradict Holy Scripture. As to the propositions which are stated but not rigorously demonstrated, anything contrary to the Bible involved in them must be held undoubtedly false and should be proved so by every possible means. So Galileo. G.K. Chesterton concurs with the reasoning of Aquinas and so also implicitly with Galileo and formulates his argument in his usual pithy way. He says, in the matter of the inspiration of scripture, Aquinas fixed first on the obvious fact, which was forgotten by four furious centuries of sectarian battle, that the meaning of scripture is very far from self-evident and that we must often interpret it in the light of other truths. If a literal interpretation is really and flatly contradicted by an obvious fact, why then we can only say that the literal interpretation must be a false interpretation. But the fact must be really an obvious fact. And unfortunately, 19th century scientists were just as ready to jump to the conclusion that any guess about nature was an obvious fact, as were 17th century sectarians to jump to the conclusion that any guess about scripture was the obvious explanation. Thus, private theories about what the Bible ought to mean and premature theories about what the world ought to mean have, have met in loud and widely advertised controversy. And this clumsy collision of two very impatient forms of ignorance was known as the quarrel of science and religion. If St. Thomas Aquinas can be helpful in this, so can St. Paul John, St. John Paul II. He describes faith and reason poetically as two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. It's very practical poetry. We're meant to fly and we can't, can't fly very well on just one wing. Contemplation of truth lies at the heart of our Christian faith. 
Christ came to bear witness to the truth and prayed that his followers might be consecrated in the truth. But how will we fulfill that sublime vocation? How will we rise to the contemplation of the truth if we don't learn, as it were, how to flap our wings? In his encyclical, Faith and Reason, John Paul offers us a lesson in wing flapping, along with a bit of encouragement to help get us out of the nest. John Paul sees that there are any number of factors that might tend to keep us in the nest. Some philosophical wings, for instance, aren't suitable matches to the wing of faith. Eclecticism, for example, which gathers ideas and principles at random, lacks the precision needed for flying. Historicism, which seeks truth only within the limits of given historical context, lacks the transcendence essential for soaring. Scientism, which limits reality to the bounds of scientific method, is too confining for flight. Rationalism accepts only what can be grasped or established by reason, and so tries to fly on only one wing, refusing to recognize faith as a second wing. Fundamentally, John Paul maintains that any philosophy that abandons the study of being the vital search for ult the ultimately real will fall into attitudes of skepticism or relativism that are incompatible with faith. If some philosophies are not compatible with faith, there are also some brands of faith that are not compatible with reason. Some believers, for instance, embrace a kind of fideism that doesn't allow them to recognize the importance of rational knowledge and philosophical discourse in the understanding of faith. If some believers shut themselves off from reason in this way, others allow themselves to be swayed uncritically by philosophical options and are overly eager to reinterpret the faith to fit currently popular philosophy. In contrast to such one-winged options, John Paul insists on the integration of faith and reason. Behind his insistence is the fundamental conviction, long a part of the Catholic tradition, that since there is ultimately only one source of truth, the one who is truth itself, there can be no contradiction between the truth that reason discovers and that which is revealed in faith. In this context, John Paul refers to especially to Thomas Aquinas and his conviction that whatever its source, truth is of the Holy Spirit. Reason can't close itself off from the truth of faith if it's to achieve its goal, which is the possession of truth. And faith can't ignore reason if it's to avoid devolving into a mere matter of feelings or myth or superstition. For John Paul, the integration of faith and reason is not just an intellectual nicety, but an essential element of a authentic Christian life. The Pope applies this principle to science and religion. He writes, science can purify religion from error and superstition, and religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. John Paul uses St. Augustine to show the necessity of integrating faith and reason. As Augustine says, to believe is nothing other than to think with assent. Believers are also thinkers. In believing, they think, and in thinking, they believe. If faith does not think, 
it is nothing. So thinking is part of faith. Aquinas also argues the importance of reflecting intellectually on what we believe. Otherwise, he says, we might find ourselves making correct statements, but with empty heads. Belief is not just thinking, but thinking with assent. As Augustine says, if there is no assent, there is no faith. For without assent, one does not really believe. To believe only what reason can explain is not really to believe at all. If I believe what you tell me, only when you tell, when you, only when you tell me what I already know, I'm not really believing you at all. If I believe only the tenets of faith that I can rationally comprehend, I'm not really believing at all. Either one accepts all of the faith or one really hasn't accepted any of it. Using reason to reflect on our faith is not a matter of critiquing the faith to decide whether it makes sense within the limits of reason. Rather, we use reason to plumb the depths of the mystery of what God has revealed. And since what God reveals is ultimately himself, we plumb the depths of the mystery of God himself. Just as when you fall in love with someone, you want to know all about them. So when we, so to speak, fall in love with God, we want to use all our human powers, mind and soul and heart to know and love him. As Jesus commands us, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole mind, and with your whole strength. Given the interrelation of faith and reason, John Paul wants to encourage all who seek after knowledge, whether through theology or philosophy or science. In his encyclical, he first thanks theologians for their service to the church and urges them to pay special attention to the philosophical implications of the word of God and to be sure to reflect in their work all the speculative and practical breadth of science and theology. He also admonishes philosophers not to set themselves goals that are too modest in their philosophizing, nor to abandon the passion for ultimate truth the eagerness to search for it or the audacity to forge new paths in the search. At the same time, he reminds them that it is faith which stirs reason to move beyond all isolation and willingly run risks so that it may attain whatever is beautiful, good, and true. Faith thus becomes the convinced and convincing advocate of reason. And finally, he urges scientists to continue their efforts without ever abandoning the sapiential horizon within which scientific and technological achievements are wedded to the philosophical and ethical values, which are the distinctive and indelible mark of human person. He reminds them that the search for truth, even when it concerns a finite reality of the world of human beings is never ending, but always points beyond to something higher and the immediate object of study to the questions which give access to mystery. Through the centuries of philosophical and theological reflection, the church deepens its penetration of divine truth. John Paul explains this quoting from the Second Vatican Council, which says, as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly progresses towards the fullness of divine truth until the word of God reaches their complete fulfillment in her, in her. The Pope uses the image of a circle 
to illustrate the relationship between faith and reason. He says, theology's source and starting point must always be the word of God revealed in history, while its final goal will be an understanding of that word, which increases with each passing generation. What matters most is that the believer's reason use its powers of reflection in the search for truth, which moves from the word of God towards a better understanding of it. It is as if moving between the twin poles of God's word and a better understanding of it, reason is offered guidance and is warned against paths which would lead it to stray from the revealed truth and to stray in the end from truth, pure and simple. Instead, Reason is stirred to explore paths which of itself it would never even suspect it could take. This circular relationship with the word of God leaves philosophy enriched because reason discovers new and unexpected horizons. What happens historically in the encounter between reason and faith also happens in the experience of individual Christians. We begin with the word of God and by rational reflection on it, we come to a deeper understanding. Then with our deeper understanding, we return to the word again to discover still greater depths. We might say that the church collectively and each Christian individually begins with the activity of circling from revelation to reasoning, from theology to philosophy and science, from faith to reason and back again. Eventually, however, if the practice is effective, we move from circling to centering. We penetrate or touch the mystery at the heart of creation, or rather we could say that mystery touches us. Here we find the still point, the end of all our searching and we're touched with joy. As St. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you.